0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, issued on Friday by the International Criminal Court for his responsibility in overseeing the forced deportation of children. Along with Putin, the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Maria Belova, Putin's presidential commissioner for children's rights, an Orwellian title considering she's in charge of kidnapping over 16,000 Ukrainian children, deporting them and re-educating them to become Russians. Joining us is Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division at Human Rights Watch, who specialises in countries of the former Soviet Union. Previously, she directed Human Rights Watch's Moscow office and did field research and advocacy in Russia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Estonia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Then we'll look into the historical memory lapse following President Biden's recent comment in Warsaw that, quote, the idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country since World War II, nothing like that has happened this coming weeks before the 20th anniversary of America's invasion of Iraq, which Biden authorized as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a decision he later came to regret. Joining us is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow of the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs... Iraq and the Pathologies of Primacy and another at The Guardian, two decades later it feels as if the US is trying to forget the Iraq war ever happened. Then finally we will speak with a conservative scholar who broke with the Heritage Foundation over its support for Tucker Carlson's pro-Russian talking points of cutting funds for Ukraine whose close friend Boris Nemtsov, the leading opposition figure in Russia's parliament, was murdered on Putin's orders just outside the Kremlin. Joining us is Dr. Ariel Cohen, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is a recognized authority on international security and energy policy and a leading expert in Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. He is also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center where he heads the Energy Growth and Security Programme and is the author of six books, the latest of which is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security, and The Lessons for the U.S. Army. Before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth without sound bites and spin as a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor your monthly donations large and small at backgroundbriefing.org/donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org, contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Rachel Denver, who is Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division at Human Rights Watch, who specializes in countries of the former Soviet Union. Previously, she directed Human Rights Watches Moscow office and did field research and advocacy in Russia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Estonia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Denver.
1: Thank you
0: so much. So Rachel, the arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin by the International Criminal Court has obviously enraged the Kremlin. It also, of course, is an arrest warrant for Maria Belova, who is also, she's in charge of this operation to essentially kidnap children and re-educate them, put them in Russian families. I believe women have also been captured and deported to the far east of Russia where there's a shortage of brides. But it indicates to me that this sort of goes back to this sort of Stalinist idea of Homo Sovieticus, the Soviet man, the idea that these gods in the Kremlin can re-engineer humanity in a way, in an inhuman way. So what explains why a nation would do this to children?
1: Well, let's let's just take this uh, step by step. So uh, Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time in 2014 when it seized Crimea. And it also instigated uh, an armed conflict in, in eastern Ukraine, which actually continued uh, from 2014 on a low level from 2014 through 2022. 2022, Russia launches a, a full-scale invasion, as you know, and eventually um, sought to claim falsely that it annexed four regions of Ukraine. Uh, in other words, they you know, Russia claimed that this is Russian territory, right? They, they these four regions, and um, and then what? What directly, re- which is completely false, obviously. Um, and then just what directly relates to this, the arrest warrant, is that um, there were many children living in institutions. They, uh, there were orphanages, if you will, but most of them uh, are not orphans. Ninety percent of them have living families. Uh, with custodial rights. These are families that were either living in poverty or living in crisis or, you know, there are other, other problems. And so their children were living in these institutions. And when, um, after the full scale invasion, in some cases, um, uh, Russian officials or their proxies simply moved the children from uh, from these institutions in Ukraine to Russia, or they moved the children from institutions in other frontline areas that they had now controlled to uh, other uh, areas that Russia was controlling. Um, and uh, and they made their... The Russian uh, parliament amended their laws uh, on governing naturalization to make it easier to adopt for these children to be adopted. So what 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 the Russian government is was doing was they were claiming that uh, this these areas aren't Russia aren't Ukraine at all. This is actually Russia and so these should be Russian children, which is completely false, which is a, a war crime and uh, and when committed at a certain scale, it's a crime against humanity and and this is the substance of the uh what's claimed in, in the arrest warrant. So and then they're separately There is a a separate stream of information uh, uh, that became public in a report published by Yale University uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was about how uh, in areas that Russia was occupying, uh, there was a move to uh, make spots available for children in children's summer camps in Crimea or uh, you know, which is occupied by Russia or, you know, in the areas of Russia. Um, and uh, in some cases, parents, you know, that the idea was supposedly let's, you know, give these children who are living in frontline areas uh, an opportunity to live away from away from the, the war, an opportunity to, um, you know, live where there isn't, aren't problems with electricity and no threat of bombardments and things like that. Um, and, uh, parents, uh, some of them were, uh, uh, felt pressured to send their children to these camps. Uh, they're living on, remember they were living under Russian occupation and the, the, the Russian occupation officials would pressure them. That, Don't you want your children to get a break? Don't you want your children to, you know, have nice conditions around them for a couple of weeks? Some of them felt pressured. Some of them genuinely wanted to send their children. Um, and they were made to sign these consent forms to send their children to these summer camps. Um, And then what happened was uh, Russia lost control, uh, you know, of of these of these two of two of these regions. Uh, Ukrainian forces retook control over them. And um, and then, you know, parents lost track of where their children were and they couldn't get their kids back. And these and some of these camps, they were more than just you know let you know let's give kids a rest let's you know give kids some better conditions so some of these you know at at these camps they were actually sending kids to school and uh filling their heads with um all kinds of uh you know what is the uh the the russian state's uh, uh narrative about about ukraine so to a certain extent, they you know they 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 did have a re-education program. So why are they why are they doing this? So Russia has a narrative about this war. Russia's narrative uh, is that uh, they believe you know that, that, that Ukraine doesn't is it doesn't exist that it's um, that it's a it was a, a Soviet construct or um, it, it doesn't have the right to exist. Um, and it is um, a part of that narrative. Also, is one of um, uh, denying Ukrainian identity, right? So the, the, you know, there's this official narrative that Ukraine isn't really a state. There's no such thing as Ukrainian identity and, and that they're really just, it's really just, they're all just Russians. And I think with this appropriation of children, they're, you know, they are trying to show that, um, you know, that, that they're all one people. Um, the problem, like I said before, is that taking children, making um Uh, engaging in actions that uh, move children uh, without the consent of their parents from one area uh, that's under occupation or under hostilities to another is a war crime.
0: Well, Maria Belova, who's Putin's presidential commissioner for children's rights, she, of course, they've also sent out out an arrest warrant for her as well as Putin. That's Orwellian children's rights, for God's sake.
1: Yes. Um, so Maria Belova, um, Maria Lvova-Belova, she is the Children's Rights Commissioner, and she and many other officials were involved in this effort to move children out of, uh, or you know, move children out of U- Ukraine and move them to other areas. She they, you know, she and other Russian officials claim that this was a humanitarian action. And that they did this, they claim that they did this in the best interest of the children. But, you know, in fact, that that's not what the law says. The law says that you can't move, that you don't move children across borders, except when, uh, you know, except in very exceptional circumstances. And then you make every effort to make it possible for them to reunite with their home country and with their and with their families. So it is absolutely Orwellian and, and also a, few, a humanitarian law violation to engage in what she did.
0: And to protect children from a war that Russia instigated and has pursued with incredible brutality. The Ukrainian prosecutor general, he says that over 16,000 children have been forcibly deported. What kind of numbers do we really have? And he he says, by yeah. the way, that, that that number is probably low.
1: Yeah. Well, look, there are, there are varying figures. The, we're, we're aware that the Ukrainian prosecutor's office has said that there are 16,000. Um, you know, no matter what the, the there, there were other numbers that, that were thrown up, that were, um, that emerged, uh, earlier in the, in the conflict. Um, look, it's really, uh, it's really hard to say exactly how many have been, uh, forcibly deported, you know, forcibly transferred. Um, I, I can't give you, uh, you know, our own independent uh, assessment, or our own independent estimate. You know, several thousand, I think, would be a conservative estimate. Uh, the, but the, the fact is that even one is a crime.
0: Right. Well, the uh, International Criminal Court prosecutor, Kareem Khan, said uh, that uh, children can't be treated as spoils of war. They can't be deported. This type of crime doesn't need one to be a lawyer. One needs to be a human being, to know how egregious it is. So, uh, and, of course, the Russian officials are, are reacting with a combination of hysteria and contempt. Medvedev, the former president, prime minister, he tweeted out a picture of a roll of toilet paper. So what does it actually practically do with the 123 member states of the, who've signed on to the International Criminal Court? With the exception of uh, Russia, of course, not a signatory, and neither is the United States.
1: Right. Well, it's you know it should surprise nobody that the uh, that Medvedev and other Russian officials would respond the way they do. That that, that they would respond to to try to discredit uh, and and scorn the uh, the arrest warrant. Um, it doesn't you know it, it doesn't have any practical implication. Um, so, I mean what the practical implication first the practical implication is that well, you know, Putin's world and the world of Maria Bilova-Livova has just shrunk significantly. They can't, you know, they can't go to the 100 these 123 countries which would be obligated to arrest them if they were uh, you know, if they were to travel there. Um so uh I I think that's it's that's quite significant. And I think it also is, you know, it's significant symbolically as well right that uh, it shows that people who you know people even at the highest reaches of power or you know can't escape the law when they when they get you know commit serious grave uh human rights violations
0: so in, t- in practical terms uh, I mean apart the fact that Putin will be able to visit China and Iran and some of the former Soviet states 123 other countries won't he, if he sets foot on them, he could be arrested. but he'll also be an alleged war criminal until he goes to trial, which obviously is not likely. So won't he be an alleged war criminal until the end of his life?
1: Well, yes, uh, he would if he if he is not apprehended and turned over to The Hague, then he will be an alleged war criminal for the to the end of his life, and I think that 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 also has practical implications. Right. Because um, it's a, I would hope that it is a, stigma, a stigmatizing factor when the head of state has been declared an alleged war criminal. And the other thing we need to keep in mind is that, um, you know, uh,
2: uh,
1: arrests can take time. We it might seem unlikely, but we need to remember that uh, that there have been precedents when heads of state have been apprehended and face justice. Um, you know, Charles Taylor of Liberia, Bashir of Sudan. You know, sometimes it, it, it does happen. Um, but again, I think we should not. No matter how remote the prospect of you know Putin actually facing a trial might seem now, his this arrest warrant I think means the world to victims of human rights violations in Ukraine.
0: Well, this arrest warrant for Putin comes just days after a a UN inquiry said that Russian attacks against civilians in Ukraine, including systemic torture and killing in occupied regions, amount to war crimes and possibly crimes against humanity. Vice President Harris has also leveled the charge that Russia is guilty of crimes against humanity. Now, Russia is not, as we mentioned, signatory to the uh, International Criminal Court but it it has signed on to the genocide convention. is there anything under the genocide convention that would cover these war crimes of deporting children
1: mm-hmm. um, well deportation of children is an element of um, is an element of genocide there would need you would for that to be uh put into play, there would need to be a finding that there was, you know, genocidal intent. So a court would need to investigate it for that. But um, just to say also that there are I, one thing I'd like to also point out is that there are, you know, Putin, the the, the arrest warrant on Putin cites this one count of um, the forced separation of children. It doesn't rule out that he could also, doesn't rule out that he could also face an arrest for other counts as well. So if you you know let's just if you just look at the commission of inquiry re- report that came out last week, um and it mentioned uh, when it talked about the bombardment of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, uh, it talked about it in terms of being systematic and widespread uh, and um, and uh, and a potential crime against humanity. So I mean, that certainly could i mean that that would have that could have the potential for being the uh, the basis of uh, of a further uh, count, um, and there was this, you know the torture uh, in areas that Russia oc- has been occupying, torture and forced disappearance that also had a widespread and systematic character.
0: So, given that we've seen evidence, and I think one Russian soldier was actually taken to the Hague, wasn't he, who shot somebody around Bucha?
1: Um, well, actually, what, what happened was, I think I know which case you're talking about. He, uh, there was a Russian soldier who was, a, who was convicted of killing somebody who, was on a, who had been riding a bicycle. And he was actually convicted by a by Ukrainian court um, and handed a prison sentence. And I think what we need to keep in mind is that the focus right now is on the International Criminal Court. But there are other avenues of justice. The, uh, the, the Ukrainian uh, prosecutor's office. Uh, is working on tens of thousands of war crimes investigations, and it's actually um, uh, indicted 260 uh, Russian soldiers uh, so far, and there have it has handed down, um, I, I, I believe, as many as 25 uh, convictions already, and some of them uh, in, in absentia. So
0: there's no doubt about war crimes being conducted routinely by Russia in Ukraine, but. You have to ask yourself whether this is to do with the overall when you talk about genocide, if you don't believe a country actually exists, then isn't that a predicate for genocide? Um,
1: believing a country doesn't exist't isn't a isn't a predicate for genocide. Genocide is a very it's a very specific crime that well, if you wage war
0: um, if, if you wage your war with that mm-hmm. belief system.
1: So yeah, genocide is a very, like I said, it's a it's a very specific crime about destroying in part or in whole uh, a a group, and that would need to be proven by uh, that would need to be proven by a court. I mean, that the intent and the action to to destroy in part or in whole. Um, And meanwhile, we have I mean, quite ample evidence of almost certain uh, crimes against humanity, which is also a, a very serious, you know, obviously a very serious offense. You know, torture should be investigated as a potential crime against humanity. The bombarding of the energy infrastructure should be, you know, investigated as a potential crime against humanity. So there are all these different, you know, and and, and then there are then, then there are war crimes, you know, individual uh, war crimes that need to be investigated. There's a, uh, you know, a whole range of types of crimes that are that are in, that are at play here.
0: So just in closing, do you think this really is getting to Putin? He's obviously a criminal and completely sadistic. I mean, he rose to power by blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing about 300 of his own citizens. And there's some fear now that he will conduct some kind of false flag operation in order to declare martial law inside Russia. But one of the things about criminals and mafia bosses is that that they also want to be treated as gentlemen. And I guess that's off the table. So, how much do you think this is getting under Putin's skin?
1: Well, that's uh, really hard to say. I, I fortunately, I don't have a, a direct line into into Putin's brain. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, look, I, I don't not I don't know what it changes in his mind or in his mindset, but it certainly changes. Would change will change things um, around all of the other actors that he would normally and the Russian government normally uh, interacts with. It makes, I mean, as you said before, you know, it makes him a potential war criminal. And everybody, every official that would normally have uh, you know, met with him and shaken his hand uh, would need to bear in mind that they are shaking the hand of potential war criminal. So, hope, you know, I would expect that this would somehow uh, change his uh, status.
0: Well, Rachel Denber, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Denber, who's the Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division of Human Rights Watch, who specializes in countries of the former Soviet Union. Previously, she directed Human Rights Watch's Moscow office and did field research and advocacy in Russia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Estonia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the historical memory lapse following President Biden's recent comment in Warsaw that the idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country since World War II, nothing like that has happened. Of course, this is coming weeks before the 20th anniversary of America's invasion of Iraq. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who is a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and has an article at Foreign Affairs, Iraq and the Pathologies of Primacy, and another at the Guardian. Two decades later, it feels as if the U.S. is trying to forget the Iraq War ever happened. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim.
3: Great to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And your article at Foreign Affairs, "Iraq and the Pathologies of Primacy," ends up talking about China in the sense that we seem to be in the in the a phase of, of of sort of stumbling or deliberately getting into a cold war, I'm not quite sure, with China. And just to touch on the on what's happening next week, President Xi of China is meeting with Putin in Moscow to discuss a peace plan for the war in Ukraine. It seems unlikely that Xi would then, would not go to Kiev to talk to Zelensky, which already Ukraine's foreign ministers had conversations with his Chinese counterpart. It would seem that a peace plan that was purely hatched in Moscow without the participation of the Ukrainians would not fly. So do you expect sometime later next week to have the Chinese announce a similar diplomatic coup as they recently pulled off between Iran and Saudi Arabia, re-establishing diplomatic relations with those bitter enemies?
3: I think what's interesting about the... uh in-person meeting between President Xi and Putin is that one could imagine the results going in quite divergent directions, uh, and they're all plausible uh, potential outcomes. It could be that uh, China ends up providing direct lethal support for Russia's war in Ukraine rather than uh, attempt to take a more neutral and conciliatory path. That's one option, perhaps not the likeliest. Another option would be that there is a serious attempt by China to try to mediate a resolution to the war. Um, That would be quite interesting. Beijing put forward a so-called peace plan recently, but it had little substance to it. So if she expresses a greater, a real serious commitment, to trying to mediate. Um, It's possible it could have an effect uh, on the outcome of the war. It doesn't look like she will travel to Kyiv to meet with President Zelensky, but there has been discussion of the two leaders having a video conference link. There's probably a a third option here, though, that seems most likely to me, which is that uh, China will continue to do what it's done since the beginning of the war and try to be all things to all people and therefore, while it may talk about mediating uh, a, between Kyiv and Moscow, that's really an effort done for show to make third parties, especially Western Europe, the global south, uh, think that China is taking a more neutral tack and a more conciliatory one uh, in this war, while well, it actually leans toward Moscow.
0: And is there a fourth and somewhat cynical position, and that is that China's perfectly happy to see the United States and NATO bog down in Ukraine, which might perhaps relieve pressure in um, Northeast Asia in terms of Taiwan?
3: That could well be the case. I think that um, there are a number of ways that Beijing could view this, this conflict, um, but that consideration, I think, is is in the mix, in addition to which the conflict is making Russia uh, more dependent on on China, which uh, which is certainly something that Beijing welcomes.
0: So let's turn to what you've written in both of the articles that I mentioned, the historical memory lapse following President Biden's recent comments in Warsaw that, quote, the idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country since World War II, nothing like that has happened. And this, of course, was just weeks before the 20th anniversary of America's invasion of Iraq, which uh, happens on Monday, tomorrow. And, of course, at the time of the authorization for that war, Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and uh, voted, along with Hillary Clinton, John Kerry and others, in a vote, of course, to authorize that war, which he later came to regret. So... um, I mean, there may be a memory lapse here in the United States, or at least from the, the president, but not around the world, right? I mean, that's what you point out, that there may have something to do with why the global south is not supporting the U.S.'s position in uh, Ukraine.
3: I think the U.S. is clearly continuing to pay a price for uh, its invasion of Iraq. It's true in the region of the Middle East. It's true around the world in terms of credibility and, and perception. It's true at home. Uh, where the Iraq war has proved uh, uh, really debilitating uh, in affecting American politics. You know, I think when President Biden made a statement like he did, could be a memory lapse. But what? what I find equally troubling is that uh, the statement was weeks old and no one seems to have cared in the United States. Nobody uh, that I can tell Asked, about, asked the White House about it. The White House didn't attempt to retract or clarify Biden's statements. The New York Times and the Washington Post ran news stories that reproduced Biden's line without questioning its veracity. So it does seem like there's an effort to move on and forget the Iraq war. And it, in fact, this effort has uh, taken place for at least the last decade. Um, Barack Obama, who came into power largely because he had opposed the Iraq war and pledged that he would end the mindset that had spawned the war in Iraq. When he moved to withdraw troops in 2011, he said it was time now to turn the page and just move on. It was as if the mindset consisted of a psychological problem of the leadership and Obama of course, believe that he had uh, a more sober uh, mentality than George W. Bush. I think he was right about that point. And since then, I think you've seen American political elites tell the country, just forget about this, move on. Uh, the challenges we face are, are different from invading Iraq. And to an extent, that's true. But I think the country has actually resisted moving on uh, because it thinks that elites have not in fact truly grappled with the profound policy failure that the invasion of iraq represented
0: well i think it helped donald trump get elected didn't it because he took that very issue on
3: i think i think that's exactly right you know we have to ask ourselves how did enough voters in enough states think that donald trump was fit to be president and commander in chief and one of the ways he did that was to say, I opposed the Iraq war from the start. Now he was lying about that, but at least he was recognizing that the war was a terrible disaster. He said it destabilized the Middle East and he sounded very angry about it. So at least in hindsight, he recognized this point and he used that weapon very effectively to discredit the chorus of national security experts who deemed him unfit for the White House.
0: So, Stephen, why do you think the entire foreign policy establishment in this country missed the real lessons of the end of the Cold War, which clearly was that it wasn't our missiles and our massive defence spending and military array, but rather blue jeans and rock and roll that American soft power that brought down the Berlin Wall and ended the Soviet Union? That I don't understand why, in the unipolar world that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union, did the u s feel, as Wolfowitz said, you know, now that we are the the last man standing or the only man standing, it's time for us to strut our stuff and and shape the world the way we want it when we have this window of opportunity, and that led to this hubristic disaster of. The invasion of Iraq and the Iraq War, which, again, is 20 years ago tomorrow, this happened. It's a shock and awe, which everybody got aboard. The truth of the matter is the only winners in the Iraq War is uh, Iran. And the neocons' champion, Chalabi, who they thought was some kind of Iraqi Nelson Mandela, ended up being an Iranian agent all along. So, I mean, it's just a catastrophe, no matter how you look at it. And I don't understand why we didn't look at what really happened in terms of the end of the Cold War and this sort of false triumphalism that we were giddy with.
3: I think it has been so difficult for Washington to grapple with the failure that the Iraq War represented because that failure emerged from a worldview, a strategy around which there is a bipartisan consensus. It's much larger than the neoconservatives. And I think you've correctly pointed to the, the key moment here, which is the United States emerging from the end of the Cold War, thinking that its power, uh, it's, it's won the Cold War, as opposed to losing less than the other side. And... Now it's going to do the easy thing, uh, which is to try to sustain its preeminence in the absence of any great power rivals. In the short term, that was a very attractive uh, option. Uh, It would have potentially uh, been difficult for the United States to severely cut its armed forces, difficult with Congress, difficult with some members of the public. And the United States would have had to find a way to accept that it shouldn't be the preeminent power in Europe, in the Middle East, in East Asia, unless a new rival arose. Uh, The essence of the US strategy that emerged from the end of the Cold War was that the United States was going to remain preeminent, scatter its forces around, continue or even expand security alliances and then hope that its overarching power would dissuade everyone else from challenging the United States until the end of time. Well, that worked, you know, reasonably well, though we could argue about that for about a decade, but almost inevitably, I would say resistance emerged. And in fact, the 9-11 attacks might well have been widely interpreted as a a terrible, uh, grievous example of blowback given that the terrorists themselves, Al Qaeda, had declared war in the United States, uh, actually twice, uh, and enumerated uh, their complaints with U.S. policy, including the stationing of U.S. forces in, in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so clearly, the United States had to go after Al Qaeda after 9-11, but the attacks themselves could have prompted a broader rethink about uh, whether it was really so wise for the United States to be so so forward in, in, um, trying to dominate regions of the world, uh, when, you know, it was, uh, the world was very, very far from, uh, constituting major threats to the United States, uh, that could reach the United States across the oceans or have any reason to do so, but for the U S imbricating itself, uh, in other people's affairs.
0: Right, but the attackers on 9-11 were mostly Saudi Arabians, a so-called ally, uh, and they attacked uh, us essentially with box cutters, and not uh, you know a trillion-dollar military machine that we have. And furthermore, following the attack and the understandable hysteria that followed and anger, the Bush administration took the totally wrong-headed approach and essentially took Bin Laden's bait because Bin Laden was telling the Muslim world that the Crusader armies are going to come and occupy your lands. So, <laughs> that's exactly what we did.
3: Well, what I think is um, really notable is, first of all, how quickly after 9 11, a number of principals in the Bush administration thought to, to hit Saddam Hussein, who it was quickly known had nothing to do with the 9 11 terror attacks. For them, I think they had imbibed a view that the United States has to be the preeminent global superpower. And 9-11 posed a, a worrying specter that, in fact, what the United States considered to be its asset, all of its security alliances and its military positions around the world, that could actually be a liability in bringing about attacks on Americans that otherwise might not occur. So from their point of view, I think it made some sense to go after a state that was not directly involved in 9-11 or not really involved at all, I should say, uh, to be able to demonstrate American power to a whole range of adversaries or potential adversaries after the United States had been beset by a, a terrible attack.
0: Well, your article at The Guardian, Stephen Wertheim, points out that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an imperial project, and America's invasion of Iraq wasn't so much an imperial project, but an exercise in hubris based upon the idea of spreading democracy, you know, in a kind of drive-by democracy way. So in terms of the way the US and the Biden administration have framed its response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. as a struggle of democracy against autocracy. It clearly would have made more sense, and it might have even brought the Chinese on board, is to, to frame it in terms of sovereignty and invasion of sovereignty. Is there any way to refocus it at this point?
3: I think the administration is aware that there are these two somewhat different justifications it has put forward. When President Biden spoke to the UN General Assembly, that is to say, addressing directly the entire international community. He emphasized sovereignty as being what was really at stake in the war of Ukraine, and said less about the struggle between democracy and autocracy. But it's been more than a year now since Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and it's clear I think that uh, President Biden is is going to make the argument that he that he has that's you know most of the time and in, in the most. Uh, public settings, he emphasizes that uh, the struggle is between democracy and autocracy, which I think leaves others around the world to say, are you saying that my sovereignty is conditional on Washington approving my form of government? So if I'm invaded by a neighbor, as Russia has invaded Ukraine, I won't get the kind of help that you're asking me to provide to Ukraine uh, unless you deem my country to be a democracy. And of course, Ukraine is obviously uh, a not exactly a paragon of democracy. It's a it's a struggling, struggling democracy. So um, I think the White House is aware of this, but there doesn't seem to be a uh, a profound change in the way it's framing the fight. And it's really unfortunate because over the past year, uh, more countries around the world have actually gone from leaning against Russia's position to becoming neutral. The coalition uh, that is supporting Ukraine and opposed to Russia has actually shrunk somewhat since the initial invasion.
0: So Stephen, I'm just in closing to just to touch on the conclusion of your article at Foreign Affairs Iraq and the Pathologies of Primacy. You say the better options are available. The United States should disentangle itself from the Middle East, shift defense burdens to European allies, and seek competitive coexistence with China. Any chance of uh, any of those three happening?
3: (laughs) There's always a chance, Ian. No, I, I think that a lot of people in Washington favor that kind of approach, including a number of people inside the Biden administration. But it's clear, you know, to date that those who want to do everything everywhere all at once, to quote a recent uh, Oscar winning film, uh, have won out so far. There's for all the talk in Washington about withdrawing from the Middle East, the United States currently stations about 50,000 troops in the region, which is about the same number as there were at the end of the Obama administration. So it's clear that the United States is going to have to be much more disciplined uh, if it wants to actually have a more concrete focus on its on its foreign policy. And it is quite urgent that the United States makes a course correction now because it is now facing a real risk of great power conflict, not just with Russia, but also and perhaps especially with China. There has to be a course correction to be able to avoid this collision course that we're on.
0: Well, Stephen Wertheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim who is a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Iraq, and the Pathologies of Primacy, and another at The Guardian. Two decades later, it feels as if the U.S. is trying to forget the Iraq War ever happened. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with a conservative scholar who broke with the Heritage Foundation over its support for Tucker Carlson's pro-Russian talking points of cutting funds for Ukraine.
2: Well, I should stop pointing fingers Reserve my judgment of all those public action figures The cowboy presidents So loud behind the bullhorn, so crazy While poison excuse from a speechwriter's pen. He knows he don't have to say it so it It don't bother him. Honesty accuracy is just popular opinion And the approval ratings high And so someone's gonna die.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Ariel Cohen, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is a recognized authority on international security and energy policy and a leading expert in Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. He's also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center where he heads the Energy Growth and Security Program and is the author of six books, the latest of which is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security and the Lessons for the U.S. Army. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Ariel Cohen. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you're quoted in an article in The Guardian Russia disinformation looks to the U.S. far right to weaken Ukraine support. The Kremlin is deploying new tactics by drawing on favorite themes and conspiracy theories of right-wing Republicans. So I take it there's also two studies that are out that uh, have looked into these issues. One at the Alliance for Securing Democracy... And another at the Atlantic Council, where I imagine were you involved in that at the Atlantic Council? No, study? I was not. Um, huh?
4: That that was done by other people. Right. But uh, generally speaking, uh, the Soviet um, intelligence work included uh, something called desinformatia, disinformation. And I wrote my master thesis uh, at the Fletcher School a long time ago, '88, '89 and i also worked in the soviet public opinion analysis for radio liberty radio free europe so uh, i'm not a stranger to these topics uh... and there is a direct line uh... from the soviet activity to today's uh, attempts, uh... to influence public opinion all over the world not just in the united states as we saw in twenty sixteen with facebook and whatnot but also you see now that in the developing world, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, uh, a lot of times people uh, are fed a steady diet of these messages that, oh, this is the white men's war. This is not of our uh, interest at all. Uh, this is the Europeans trying to set something out. We don't care about that. And that opens a door. For the Russians to continue their trade relations, to use, for example, grain exports uh, as a blackmail tool um, to secure uh, the support of African uh, and Asian countries. Uh, and uh, that puts us, uh, the West, the U.S., and Europe, uh, into a somewhat isolated position. It's not a horrible position. But I would much rather prefer for uh, developing countries to recognize that Russian behavior is indeed imperialistic. Uh, It is um, uh, destroying Ukraine. It uh, takes Ukrainian territory, denying the Ukrainian nation the right to exist as an independent nation. Um, And um, the information operations uh, are playing a role here in this country and all over the world.
0: Well, just to finish up on the support for Russia's war in in Ukraine in in the global south, right next door in Mexico, there is also support from the president, um, López Obrador, and also in Brazil, its new president. Also, I wouldn't say they necessarily support Russia, but they don't support the United States and its position. What explains that? It's not about grain.
4: Uh, This... If you go back and look at uh, López Obrador and uh, Lula, uh, these are people of the left, if not to say that I I wouldn't call Lula far left. It's people of the left. Uh, Their constituencies are anti-American, and they um, build upon uh, anti-Americanism. Whatever America does is wrong, and um, they see our involvement in Europe and uh, our support of Ukraine at some kind of colonialism or imperialism, which is, of course, wrong. Uh, we we do not want uh, to control the Ukrainian uh, territory or the country. That's what the Russians want. Uh, but, um, yeah, this is anti-Americanism, pure and simple.
0: So let's talk about the reason uh, I called you, given that you quoted in this article in The Guardian that I mentioned yes. So Tucker Carlson seems to be playing an outsized role in influencing the American right to cut aid, in particular Congress, to cut aid to Ukraine. And my Mm -hmm. assumption would be that this is the best play that Putin has because he's not doing very well militarily and the Ukrainians are preparing for a spring offensive where things may even get worse for him on the battlefield. So would you agree with that? That he uh, must be using active measures over time to influence. Uh, uh,
4: if if Putin had an asset, a hypothetical. Let's say Putin does have an asset in the United States. That asset would be articulating the Russian talking points, and of course, I do not see any evidence that Tucker Carlson is directly connected to Russian intelligence. But let me tell you, some of the uh, messages uh, that Ukrainians are stealing our assistance money. Um, and <laughs> I am I, the first one to say yes. We need to track the assistance money because we saw that billions of dollars went missing in Iraq and Afghanistan. I published a couple of articles saying that the future assistance to Ukraine should be transparent. Uh, We should have a bunch of accountants uh, tracking that money. But today, when the war is going on, that is not the main point. Yeah, things should be transparent, granted, Uh, and they are. Uh, But um, the the Russians are pushing that point that the money is somehow stolen, that uh, Zelensky somehow personally benefits from this war. And there's no evidence for that. But Tucker and others are pushing that, uh, there's another talking point that um, uh, Ukraine somehow uh, is a part of Russia. Uh, that's what Putin says. Putin says uh, these are territories that um, were Russian, uh, and uh, Ukrainians are not a people; they don't have a right to exist. Well, let me tell you something. There was a Ukrainian national movement in the Tsarist Empire, um, and then uh, when the Bolsheviks uh, captured Ukraine after a short period of independence in 1918 um they gave ukrainians some amount of cultural autonomy language culture uh, etc and uh, after 80 years 90 years uh, to say that it doesn't exist is falsifying history and it's interesting that when putin says that there is an amen chamber here in this country on the far right that uh, repeats it. Why do they do it? Who gets to Tucker's ear or to Trump's ear and now to DeSantis's ear? I have no idea, but let me tell you, some of the people on the right uh, that I know and I worked with when I was the head of Eurasian Studies at the Heritage Foundation, uh, they do not see things that way, but they're no longer with the Heritage Foundation. They quit when the current President of Heritage uh, voiced uh, the Tucker like position um, on uh, Ukraine and said that we should not support Ukraine.
0: So you're in a position then, Dr. Ariel Cohen, I imagine you've tried to figure out why they think this way. So why do they think this way? And, you know, this is a, particularly coming from the, the Republican Party, which, you know, Ronald Reagan has to be turning over in his grave.
4: But that's what I said. I said Ronald Reagan, uh, who saw uh, both the communist ideology and imperialism um, as uh, evil forces, and was uh, the uh, leader of uh, U.S. and West uh, engaging the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world in Central America, we supported. The contrast now there are different opinions about uh... how we supported the contrast, uh, but uh, Reagan understood the American role as the beacon of democracy, freedom, free markets, and liberty. Um, the far right today is very cynical about that. They gave up the Reagan ideology, or for that matter, <laughs> that ideology goes way before Reagan to the British philosophers of the Enlightenment uh, in the late 18th, um, early 19th uh, century, Adam Smith, Edmund Burke, and others. Um, uh, Now, uh, I don't want to uh, throw epithets and call people fascists, but the far-right today is directly connected to the America First. They call themselves America Firsters. But the America First was sympathetic to Franco, uh you remember Pat Buchanan who grew up in a family of uh, Franco uh, sympathizers Franco was a general um, in Spain uh, Francisco Franco Franco who um, uh fought uh, and won the civil war in Spain being supported by Hitler and Mussolini so the far right has very dubious roots and if they had their druthers back in the 1930s uh the US would sit out world war 2 in fact i had somebody writing to me on twitter yesterday saying we supported the wrong side in world war 2 basically a man was a hitler supporter and i banned him uh, but uh this is a dangerous dangerous trajectory for the US and what mr de santis did uh mistakenly in my opinion uh he divorced putin from Uh, China from Xi Jinping. In fact, uh, on the 4th of February 2022, Putin was in Beijing for the Olympics, and China and Russia published a declaration of, quote, unlimited friendship. What does that mean? That's a declaration of a geopolitical axis. Who that axis is directed against is directed against the United States and against uh, our allies in Western Europe and elsewhere in the world. And we see the Chinese are pushing. Just recently, they brokered a the deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Putin is going to Russia to try and bro—I'm sorry C is going to Russia to try and broker a deal uh, between Russia and Ukraine. I think he's going to fail, but not for the lack of trying. So the effort by Moscow and Beijing, as I argue in a number of articles published in The Hill and elsewhere, is to tilt the balance of power in the world, and this is an axis that is directed against America and our interests in Europe and elsewhere.
0: But Tucker Carlson is not just spouting Kremlin propaganda. And by the way, uh, Russian state TV uh, runs his programs and clips of him regularly. He's actually playing a hands-on role. He sent out a questionnaire both to Donald Trump and then to Ron DeSantis about Ukraine. And that is what prompted... DeSantis to go on the record, and and it and it's a written record, by the way. He wrote back, filling out Tucker Carlson's questionnaire, and again, most of what he he said is uh, Russian talking points.
4: Well, that's a scary thing. Um, unfortunately, with our uh, educational system uh, collapsing in this country, uh, people don't study history, and frankly, the stuff I'm talking about is a result of. Thirty plus years of my study uh, that involved masters and PhD in Russia, international security, etc. So this is not something you pick up, um, you know, on um, in a TikTok video or on Twitter. Uh, and Russia goes back hundreds of years, uh, defining itself in a position to the West first uh, against the Catholic Europe, then against Catholics and Protestants. You know, uh, you have Ivan the Terrible uh, complaining bitterly about Elizabeth the I. We're talking 16th century. Um, and then um, Nicholas II refers to Queen Victoria and said, the English woman is spoiling everything. These are quotes. Um, and uh, then, you know, hatred of America under Stalin. And when Putin grew up, when Putin was a young man, um, a budding KGB officer, The brainwashing uh, in the Soviet Union was tremendous. I lived there as a child. I remember that very well. Hatred of America. This is pretty much on the level of George Orwell's 1984. But what happened? It was so much that a lot of people understood that these are lies. A lot of people were listening to American and British uh, foreign broadcast, BBC, the Voice of America, etc., Uh, Radio Liberty. And in the end, uh, the communist ideology collapsed. We are in the very beginning of this circle vis-a-vis Putin. But Putin has enablers in this country. That's tragic. Uh, We know in Germany the influence was so huge that they, uh, year after year, decade after decade, dug the hole that they were in in terms of increasing their dependence on the Russian gas. Uh, Instead of diversifying their energy economy, they bought more and more gas from Gazprom, and then they, were beca- they-, they became more and more pliant uh, and not standing up uh, to Russia uh, while emasculating their military. So clearly we don't want to be in the same situation, especially that even the right understand the threat that's coming from China. But Putin today is a junior partner of Xi Jinping, and we need to remember that.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, Dr. Arikhan, let's talk about how you disabuse the far right of their affection towards Putin. I'm not sure what you can do about Tucker Carlson. Uh, well, known for the, uh, the, yeah, uh, I,
4: the, I would like somebody to look into Tucker and try to understand what are the motivational factors uh, in his pro-Putin position. But more broadly, I think what people are missing on the right and in general, is what kind of Russia Putin is presiding on. This is a Russia with one of the highest levels of HIV infections in the world, probably the highest in Europe, uh, one of the highest levels of divorce, low levels of church observance or religious observance. This is not some kind of a bogus uh, defender Of Christendom and the white race that some on the right believe Putin is. He isn't. Putin's immigration policy are welcoming um, Muslims from Central Asia, people of color, from as far as Bangladesh and Afghanistan. Go to Moscow, see. Third of the Moscow population are Muslims, and they're brown people, and I don't see much wrong with that, but it's a bogus argument that Russia is some kind of uh last uh, bastion of uh, white christendom and you h- you hear that narrative as well uh, there is a strict and un- anti-gay uh legislation in russia but it is widely known that very senior people in the putin administration as well as cultural figures in russia are gay uh, as they are in other countries uh, so, <laughs> this is not a model you want to uh, follow. And especially for people who care about free markets, Russia is far from being a free market. It's a corrupt dictatorship run by Putin's Secret Service and Mr. Putin himself. And that's it, folks.
0: Well, that didn't stop, though, Stephen Bannon on his Wallroom podcast on, in February of 2022, where he had an interview with Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. They both enthused about Putin's policies and being anti-woke and praised Putin's homophobia and transphobia.
4: Well, again, uh, this is politics. Uh, people uh, build narratives. Um I met Steve Bannon. I don't think Steve Bannon is um, how should we put it? Uh, I don't think Steve Bannon necessarily believes in in everything he says. People play politics. People push narratives. And I think it's vastly unfortunate for the Republican Party that the two leading candidates, Mr. Trump and Mr. DeSantis, now appear uh, to be in the position of appeasing Russia, appeasing Putin, the man who kills his political opponents in cold blood like he killed my friend Boris Nemtsov, the opposition leader, murdered in 2015. And I warned him not to go back to Russia, and he didn't listen to me. Uh, But... um, People fall out of windows, people get poisoned, like Alexei Navalny, who just uh, was featured in uh, an Oscar-winning documentary. Uh, This is not a kind of regime you want for this country, or do you? And if you do, uh, (laughs) you're a clear and present danger for this country.
0: Dr. Ariel Cohen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Ariel Cohen, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a recognized authority on international security and energy policy and a leading expert in Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. He's also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center, where he heads the Energy Growth and Security Program, and is the author of six books, the latest of which is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.